Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Gregory Lim, co-founder and CEO of Persosa. Just recently, we've started focusing on building partnerships with these large media companies, specifically in TV and web publishing. So, you know, an example today is you're watching television, you see an ad for, you know, in America, a Ford F-150 truck. Like most Americans, 97% of people watch TV with a second device in their hand. You see this great ad for a truck. You say, I want to learn more about it. You go to Ford.com and they show you a minivan. Right? It's a lost opportunity, not only for the company, but it's a disconnected conversation with the consumer. This is Gregory. He was a former CEO of LifeLock and the founder of Qual & Quant, a full-service strategy, finance, and marketing agency. He combines his background in finance and marketing and believes that great marketing is the perfect combination of math and magic. He likes to challenge the status quo, and for one, that the market believes that 3% conversion rate is normal in digital marketing. And this is why he co-founded Persosa in 2016. It's a startup that's on a mission to solve the challenge of creating media experiences customers love without them feeling interrupted by information they're not interested in. And doing this all while continuing to bring in needed revenue and keeping advertisers happy. And that inspired me, and hence I invited Gregory to my podcast. We explore what's broken in digital marketing and how the disconnect with what is normal in the real world is leading to many inconvenient but also often creepy experiences. He shares the big idea behind this company and how this has helped brands to have more organic, natural conversations with their clients, leading to higher and faster conversion. He also shares the big lessons learned in building his company and what has been instrumental to where Persosa is right now and what he will do differently next time. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, that building a product that drives transformational change is not enough. The other thing is how to remove all critical barriers to adopting it. Secondly, how critical it is to understand what your customers want, but then layer in your vision and give them something beyond what they're asking for. Thirdly, be aggressive in those areas where you can learn what resonates with your customers. 
instead of burning your marketing budget. And fourthly, how getting to break even first opens a lot of doors and opportunities to control your growth rate and give leverage when you talk to investors. Well, hi, Greg. Thank you for making the time available today and being a guest on my podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. Well, that's the same for me. I looked into your company. Someone introduced me to it. I said, we need to have a look at this. And I got inspired by what you do, your company, Persosa. I started, you co-founded this company in March 2017. So there's a couple of years yeah, in the works right now. And yeah, this is an area that I haven't had many people on my podcast talking about. And that also intrigued me in terms of how this world really works and yeah, what is the innovation we can really get from this. So really eager to this interview. But before we start, if you would have to introduce yourself or characterize yourself with a couple of keywords about what defines you or characterizes you as an entrepreneur, what would you say? Oh, wow. Three words. I would or say two. first, uh, yeah, I would say a connector and not just kind of from a business perspective, but from a people perspective, I think I've had a career where I'm made to, able to make these unusual connections that perhaps other people don't see, not only whether it's you know, introducing people or within the business world. And I think that's really kind of what's driven me towards Persosa and creating something what we believe is new and different in the marketplace. Second thing I would say, I'm definitely an optimist. I love people First off, I think you have to be an optimist to be an entrepreneur, right? Half of it is self-belief in something you've never done before. So definitely an optimist, see the best in all situations and people. And then I think the third thing would really be just resilient, right? I think as an entrepreneur, you're having to figure things out. So I you know, won't go too far off on a tangent, but I played and coached professional rugby for about 20 years. And you, know, you tackle someone, you have to get up again. You tackle someone, you have to get up again and do that for 80 minutes. And I feel yeah. like uh, being an entrepreneur is a very similar approach, right? You're dealing with a problem, you have to solve it and then move on to the next one you know, day in and day out. Yeah. Are you originally from Australia? Close. Originally from New Zealand, actually. Oh, my God. Yeah, I bring back, well, memories. I've, that's a different story. I don't, <laughs> I don't go on this one. I'll tell you later. So, yeah, well, great. Optimist, connector, resilient, which is, by the way, the theme of the second book that I'm writing right now. So music to my ears. So when you started Persosa in March 17, what did you see in the market? What was broken and what was sort of crying yeah, for a solution? Yeah, so it's interesting. Leading into this, my background was actually in finance. No experience in marketing. I helped take LifeLock in the US. They are the founder of the identity theft protection industry. We built that company up from nothing and sold it to Semantic for $2 billion. So I helped take them public within their finance organization. From there, I became chief of staff, oversaw operations. And one day, the CEO asked me to pop into marketing to help out with the project. And next thing you know, I turned around and I was CMO for a year and a half. We are responsible for a quarter of a billion dollars with no marketing experience. The company's still in business, so we'll call that a win. But why I think that's relevant to this conversation is I didn't have any expectations around how things should work. And there was one thing that just never really made sense to me as a non-marketer, which was we did all this persona development like all of these other companies, right? We had nine different personas. We knew how much money they made, how many children they had. We even had little pictures for each one of those personas. Yet for all that development and work that we did, buying data, building the personas, testing everything, doing customer surveys, when they all came to our website, whether you're persona one, two, three, all the way through nine, 
you got the exact same experience. It never really made sense to me. And so that was the genesis of Pesosa initially where we launched was as a web personalization company. Really uh-huh. what we do is, you know, Tan, you and I are different people. When we go to a website today, we get the same experience. But if you're coming in and are interested in one product or service, maybe I'm coming in from a different marketing campaign, we should be getting different experiences and having personalized conversations with the brand. And so we created this technology really to kind of humanize the interactions between brands and consumers. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. Well, that's an industry that has really skyrocketed. So that was the original point. Does it mean that it has pivoted in the meantime? We haven't pivoted, but we've definitely evolved. We have two kind of subsequent phases of the business. The first evolution was, well, web personalization is interesting, but consumers are having conversation with brands in web, mobile app, on television, they're watching different shows. And so we actually abstracted the platform and grew it to be a multi-channel personalization platform. And so yep. what that means is we can take signals in from any digital platform, process them in real time, and then push the appropriate content back to that consumer in that channel, whether it's mobile app, mobile web, regular website, streaming audio, your wearables, whatever the case is. And so sure. that's where we moved. And then the second phase, and I know this is something that you wanted to talk about later in this interview, is you know, there are a lot of changes today in consumer privacy, whether it's regulatory through GDPR and CCPA, sure. lots of changes with Google and Apple around third-party cookies going away and privacy. Yeah. And so what we discovered, yeah, I wish I could say I was strategically brilliant. That's not the case. But what we discovered is behind the scenes, in order to deliver personalization, you need to be able to track identify and create audiences. And so underlying the personalization platforms that I shared, we actually have some proprietary technology that we've just productized around you're helping companies track their own consumers across the different channels, own that data in a first party context to create a data asset for our clients. And then also we have some solutions around consumer tracking without the use of third party cookies. So we keep evolving, not pivoting, but those are all kind of three separate products, web personalization, multi-channel personalization, and then a number of solutions around data ownership and identity management. Yeah. What I see from your website is that you are heavily specialized around media, media publishers, and particularly TV media. That's, I mean, I see the pictures there. I read your content and I see like the frustrations that we have that, you know, we get to watch the television and then there's an ad again and we don't want to look at the ads. And so you're solving that the problem as well, which to me as a consumer is like music to my ears. But yes. like, yeah, there's all these different platforms and how do you connect the dots there? Yeah, we just, you know, just recently we've started focusing on building partnerships with these large media companies, specifically in TV and web publishing. So, you know, an example today is you're watching television, you see an ad for, you know, in America, a Ford F-150 truck. Like most Americans, 97% of people watch TV with a second device in their hand. You see this great ad for a truck. You say, I want to learn more about it. You go to Ford.com and they show you a minivan right? It's a lost opportunity, not only for the company, but it's a disconnected conversation with the consumer. So having the ability to partner with the TV companies and with Ford, now when you go to Ford.com, wouldn't it be great if we dynamically merchandise the site to show similar supporting and amplifying imagery language around the commercial that they just saw? So there's no one doing this in market right now. 
knock on wood, we plan to be the first, hopefully launch some pilots in the next kind of 60 to 90 days. And I really think this is something that can transform the industry because it's, and I think you'll love this as a product guy, we're creating new value. So this isn't a zero sum game. Everybody wins, right? The media companies are winning because they have new ad units that they can sell and that they can also offer better attribution and reporting. The brands are winning because they're selling more product by delighting the customers. And the customers are winning because they're having connected and personalized experiences with brands they're interested in. And that's the thing that gets me really passionate and excited is I believe if you can unlock new value in which everyone can share and win, that's what can really grow and scale a business in an industry. And that's what we really kind of focused on you know, for the next you know, number of years. Well, it's music to my ears. And I mean, the people that are like listening to this podcast don't see it, but I mean, chapter number, what is it? Five in my book is remarkable mm-hmm. software companies create new value possibilities. That's triggered me on your website. And I was like, wait a minute, this could be revolutionary to what we are all know. Hence, well, I'm inviting you to my podcast. Well, it's interesting. We're actually talking to some podcast companies doing the same thing, right? So people listen to your podcast. Perhaps you have a you know, commercial or an interstitial talking about one of you know, your other sponsors or brand partners, you then go to their website and you'll know where to be found. But you introduced me to that brand. Wouldn't it be cool if now when I went to that brand partner's website, there's an image of you that shows up and says, hey, I really love this product or service. This is why I talk about them on my podcast and make a connection between you know, your listening audience and that portion of the audience that that product or you know, partner resonates with. And have you helped guide them through that buying process? That's a really powerful experience because I know and trust you versus knowing and trusting the brand. I'm introduced to the brand through my passion for your podcast. And if there's a way for you to continue to help guide that consumer through that introduction, that's a very powerful experience that doesn't exist today. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, so what do you believe is like around those examples that we just discussed, what do you believe is the opportunity if we get this right? If you already started to mention there's a word of a win-win-win case, what would the world look like in two, three years from now if we all embrace well, I this? Think, yeah, I think there are a few different things. I think there's a big picture question, and I'll get to that in a minute, but I thought there's kind of a more humanized perspective on this. So I think a really good thought exercise for all marketers and something that I do is to say, what if technology doesn't exist? What would this interaction look like in the real world? And the reason I do that is we have normalized what I consider bad communication because of the limits of technology. So let me give you a couple of examples. Imagine, right, Tom, this is the first time you and I are talking. Imagine if we met a second, third, and fourth time, and every time we met, I reintroduced myself and asked you your name. Yeah, At first, you'd think I was maybe forgetful. By the third or fourth time, you'd be like, this guy's just rude. But if you think about it, that's what happens on a website every time. You know, yeah. Whether you're a first-time customer, maybe you're a VIP customer, you're coming in because you're inter- to a sports store because you're interested in a pair of running shoes, or you came in through a football ad, doesn't matter who you are, we're getting spoken to in the exact same tone of voice, and the brand is just reintroducing themselves every single time. If that were to happen in a real conversation between you and another person, you'd never talk to them again. But we've said, you know what? that's acceptable and that's just how the internet works. And so what we're trying to solve to your question at a personal level is we want to use technology to empower real and natural conversations between brands and consumers. I think another example of that is so much of the internet is what I call display retargeting. So perhaps you go to nike.com, you look at a pair of shoes, you're not ready to buy them. 
And now, now you go onto your ESPN.com and that pair of shoes follows you around the internet. And then you go to your newspaper app and there's an ad for that same pair of shoes, right? We've all seen that happen. It's like, wait, I was just looking at that product. Why is it following me around the internet? And that's okay. That's how it works. But again, let's take that out of context and bring it into the real world. Imagine if you walked into a shoe store, tried on a pair of shoes and said, you know, I'm not ready to buy. I'm going to think about this purchase. You leave the store, you drive on your way home and you stop in at the grocery store and you're in the vegetable aisle deciding you know, what food you want to buy for your family. And the salesman pops out and says, hey, remember me? Want to buy a pair of shoes? That's a little bit creepy. And then you leave the store, hop back in your car, drive home and you stop at the gas station and fill up with petrol. And while you're sitting there at the pump, the shoe salesman jumps out again and says, hey, remember me? Want to buy this pair of shoes? You know, it sounds creepy and funny and ridiculous. But when you look at it in that context, that's how the internet is working. And so back to your question, what we're truly trying to do from not a macro perspective, but just from an individual perspective, we want to help brands have more organic, natural conversations, just like you would in the real world. And the result of that, we believe, is the ability to truly unlock billions and billions of dollars of revenue for companies. Because the reason is now, because of the way the brands talk to me, because it's impersonal, it's disconnected, it's creepy and it follows me around the internet, it takes a long time for me to make a purchase or feel comfortable with that brand enough to give them my dollars or try that product or service. Mm -hmm. But if they can talk to me in a tone of voice that's meaningful to me about a product or service I'm truly interested in, in a conversation that evolves every time I come back to them, my ability to trust them, to cross that line where I trust them enough to give them my money and to try their product or service, that length should significantly shorten from, you know, they say it's anywhere from like six to 15 touch points. Maybe we get that down to two, three, even four touch points because the consumer really appreciates how you're treating them. Let me make a small interruption here. Gregory just explained the essence of what helps them create defensible differentiation. Not by building yet another marketing platform that helps you push out more messages at scale between air quotes, but by going back to what it is all about, building trust with consumers. This is not about more and more often, but this is about helpful and being human. It's a trait remarkable software companies master. They focus on the essence and create new value possibilities. They also aim to be different and not just better. And you can master these traits as well. And I got various options for you to start. The simplest thing to do is to go to valueinspiration.com and learn about the masterminds and the work streams to put the fundamental building blocks in place to fast track the growth of your software company. And while you're there, just grab a free Kindle version of my book, The Remarkable Effect to start sparking new ideas in the next 30 minutes. Back to the interview. That's really what we've been doing in a nutshell, right? There's an economic value, but it starts by truly delighting the customers and engaging them. Yeah, it makes sense. And yeah, indeed, you don't realize how strange some certain things indeed work and how creepy they indeed are. (laughs) So yeah, just kind of winding back the clock, starting the company, starting to work on the big idea and then kind of productizing that. What on that journey have you done in order to make this a product that creates, well, first of all, defensible differentiation, like that it stands out in its own right, that it's not easy to copy? Yeah, so I'm really fortunate. I have a phenomenal co-founder, former national security agency, top secret employee. He was a product lead at Amex. 
he actually worked as a consultant with the first you know, urchin analytics team that was later became Google Analytics. And the reason I bring that up is we believe that we have a unique perspective is he's coming it up from the data, the privacy, the identity perspective. And then I'm coming at it from the user side, right? From the marketing side. And we believe that's allowed us to create a unique platform. When you look at in the industry today, there are some solutions that can do just web personalization. Yeah. There are very few that can do multi-channel personalization. And then maybe there's another company that you can use to track your consumers. And then maybe another solution that you can do to try and figure out what's going on with third-party cookies. What we've done that's truly unique is we've built all that into a single platform. And so right, it's about data ownership, but it's not just data for data's sake. We then take that data and unlock value against it in real time. And so you want to own your data? We can do that. You want to create audiences from that data? We can do that. You want to now create real value and deliver personalized conversations? We can do that. We're able to do all of that in a single platform in real time. And so that holistic view is kind of our point of differentiation. Uh The other thing is kind of as the buyer myself in my former role, we've tried to remove all of the barriers to prove value. What I mean by that is you could have a great product and we've all been there. Gosh, this is a great product. I wish I could use it. You call your IT department and it's like, hey, great. We're going to put that in our IT queue behind the ERP system implementation. And I'm going to assign 10 engineers and three project managers and a data analyst. And we'll talk to you in 2023. And so what we've tried to make is a fully featured and powerful platform that our installation is literally 15 minutes. We're able to change any and all content throughout your entire website but without having to do any backend integration to your CMS. So we've tried to remove, one, make it fully featured, two, remove those barriers to entry from a technology perspective or implementation perspective. And then what we've also done is we have a no-code visual editor that allows marketers to basically point and click to create these personalized experiences. So we've really, to your question, we've really tried to be thoughtful, not just from a user or a technical perspective, but truly end-to-end, lower that barrier to entry. Because what we see in the marketplace, having been a buyer myself, is I want to try something, but it's going to cost me $200,000, 10 engineers. And if it doesn't work, no one ever says this publicly, but I'm not sure if I'm going to do that because I'll probably be looking for another job. Yeah, it's fear-based decision-making, which I'm never a fan of, but that's the reality within most large corporations. I come from that world, yeah. But if we can say to someone, hey, it's a few thousand dollars to try it, it's a 15-minute technical implementation, and we can be driving real results for you in market in two to three weeks, that's something they're willing to try and test because the upside opportunity of delighting the customers and driving more revenue is more than worth that that little bit of investment up front. True, true. Yeah, and we don't often think this through. And I mean, I think it has, of course, with the whole notion of software as a service, it has increased dramatically, but still, it's not still not where it needs to be. So I, th- I actually applaud for this whole, for the other movement around product-led growth, where, yeah, it's like a low-touch approach for people to sign up, get into work with it, fall in love with the product and grow from there. Yes. So yeah, I mean, thumbs if up you, for that. My belief is, if you're really delivering value, I think that's always the best approach, right? I mean, if someone's locked into me because they invested a, a lot of money, a lot of time, that's not the reason I want them to become a, stay a customer. I want them to stay a customer because we're unlocking real value for them on, on, on an ongoing basis. And so we think because of that belief, we believe that's a really good approach for us. Oh, yeah. And it's, I applaud for that as well, because at the end, you know, it's like finding those companies that become your fans and your advocates, and then they will do also the marketing for you. So that it, it also... Mm-hmm. 
it's not only a very viable way of doing business. It's cheaper, it's faster, it's just, yeah, you create more with it. So good for exactly. that. One of the people I've always admired in this world, Steve Jobs, fortunately, of course, he's not there anymore. But one of the things he used to say was, innovation is not about what you say yes to, but what you say no to. And I mean, I can imagine when you start this journey with this company, Persosa, there are so many things to look for and to go after. What have you been deliberately saying no to in terms of uh, creating momentum? <laughs> I wish I'd heard that quote on day one of this business. We would have been a lot more successful uh, a lot earlier on. You know, I think one of the really powerful things about personalization is whether it's B2B, B2C, top of funnel, bottom of funnel, there's always an individual on the other side of that conversation. And where I'm going with this is personalization can help everybody. Now, but that's not a very good business, not a very good go-to-market strategy, is it? And so what we've tried to say no to is to be really thoughtful about who can we unlock the most value to the quickest? And so where we've been focused is performance marketers. They understand that it's very, they're very data-driven, they're very results-driven, and they usually have budgets to try and test new products. And so what we've, you know, we've had to learn over time to say no to is there are all of these other verticals that we could help, right? Imagine higher education with a number of universities approached us saying, hey, I want to you know, speak more consistently to my students. I want to talk to the people who are interested in my MBA program about the MBA program, the people who are interested in biology about biology, right? Some great opportunities in all of these other markets, but we've had to yep. say no, especially as a small team, so that we can kind of keep growing the business. Obviously, at some point in time, we'll look to expand into these additional verticals, but really try and be focused on where we can unlock the most value the quickest and being really, it's always hard to say no to new business, but really trying to be focused has been a key to our growth now. It took us a year and a half to figure that out, but that's part of the journey. Yeah, well, that's the whole journey towards product market fit at the end, right? So what has been the hardest nut to crack in this whole project or process? Especially where we started recently, you brought up our TV extension. When you look at what we're doing from the outside, you saw it immediately like, wow, this is fascinating. This, this is something new. It's going to change the industry. We feel the same way. What we discovered is when you're in the industry, you're not always incented to disrupt and change your own business. And so what we've done to address that is we've really brought on some phenomenal advisors. We have Ed Wilson, the former CEO of NBC, CBS, and Fox. We brought on Steve Mandala, the former chief revenue officer of Univision, one of the largest Spanish language media companies in the US. And so rather than us trying to disrupt this industry, they've been really great about bringing us into the right industry insiders and having these kind of strategic conversations with them. The lesson learned there was, you know, if you're below the C-suite or the VP level, you have a very clear job. Here's how you're paid. Here's how you're motivated. What we're doing doesn't fit in that model. And so the biggest lesson for us was that for a long time, we we're actually talking to the wrong people and being really thoughtful. And we've done a better job lately in terms of identifying who we should be talking to, who understands the value that we can bring to the company. And from there, obviously having much better partnership conversations about bringing this new technology to market. Yeah, I understand that one. Yeah, you can go broke on that particular question. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Has there been any surprising byproducts in this journey, like that you were planning to go that direction and suddenly there was something popped up that started to resonate? Yeah, I would say definitely the shift in the market around changes in privacy and third-party cookies going yeah, away. Obviously, 
it's never presented this way in the media, but it's really it's an industry control issue that primarily Google and Apple are fighting between the two of them. Unfortunately, the rest of us as brands and marketers, we are, we're the ones dealing with the fallout of those decisions. And so from a product perspective, our ID network, our data tracking, everything we're doing kind of behind the scenes in support of our personalization technology, we've actually productized that and rolled that out into its own product for companies that want to track their consumers in a secure and private first-party manner, that want to own that data to create a data asset, and for the smart marketers who are looking ahead and saying, all right, I know third-party cookies are going away, what alternatives are there and what can I do to kind of you know, help my business stay ahead of that? What have you done in order to kind of go beyond that new trend, yeah. that new reality? Because yeah, I mean, well, I've been having a couple of people on my podcast, yeah, that are really all about the privacy issue. And one for them, for example, DigiMe is about like yeah, leaving I, I the, them, the actually. yeah, leaving the ownership of the data in the hands of the individual. There's for another one, Anagog offers Zipperman. They really kind of bet it on the uh, edge AI type of approach whereby people like, get personalized messages and offers and all of those type of things. But based on like where they are and where they're going to, like geographically wise or yes. the geofencing and these type of things. But none of that data actually goes to the cloud. So there are different ways of solving it. What approach yes. did you take? Well, I think there are a few different things buried in there and I'll touch on all of them. I think first off, from a privacy perspective, you always have to put the consumer's privacy first. Like I said, my background was as chief marketing officer of LifeLock. Our job there was literally to protect consumer identities. So we always have that kind of approach and viewpoint. What I would say is, again, let's go through that exercise. What if marketing was real life? Imagine if I'd never met you and you walked up to me, you know, it's at a mixer event or in the park and we just start talking, right? I don't know your name. I don't know where you live. I don't know your social security number or your national ID or sure. whatever country you're in, but we can still have a back and forth conversation. Because you say something, I listen, I respond, and vice versa. And where I'm going with that is I don't have to know that you're Jane Smith living at 1234 4th Street. But if I know that you're an anonymous visitor who came in through a football boot ad and you're coming to my store, I want to give you a football experience. Yeah. If I know that you came in through a basketball ad, let's give you a basketball experience. If you're a returning visitor and you're looking at these certain pages, I can gauge something around your behavior to give you content and start a conversation around things that you're expressing interest in without directly knowing who you are at an individual level. So I think okay. that's one way that you can do it. It's an oxymoron. I call it anonymized personalization. So that's the first way. The second way you can approach it to protect privacy is be cohort-based. So again, I don't have to know who you are, but I'm going to bundle you with 10,000 other people who are doing the same things on my website or coming in from the same city or whatever other signals we're using. Yeah, and true. so although it feels personalized to you, it's not truly one-to-one -one in the fact, again, I have to know who you are as an individual in yeah. the real world. And so I think there's a very thoughtful way that you can deliver personalization. I also think from a privacy perspective, I think there are two key problems with the privacy conversation in the market today. The first one is, Digital marketing is still a relatively young industry. And what I mean by that is most marketers, it's a new industry, but also most marketers handling in digital marketing are actually young, right? The average age of a digital marketer is somewhere between 25 and 35. And the reason that's important is when they started their career, cookies were already in place. The example I give is 
I hop in my car and drive it to work every day. I don't know how a transmission works. And cookies are the exact same way. The average digital marketer, they say cookies are going away. They don't actually know or understand what that means because cookies have always existed long before they started their career in digital marketing. And so when you go to someone and say, cookies are going away, well, is that first-party cookies? Is that first-party client side, first-party server side? There are a lot of nuances in terms of types of cookies, how they work, which ones are going away, which ones are staying, and even the ones that are staying, there are different types and how they interact together. And so without a fundamental understanding of that, it's hard to find the right replacement solution. And so I think the foundational problem is there's been little to no education about the real problem rather than just making these broad statements that most of the time are inaccurate, which are cookies are going away. That's absolutely not true. Third-party cookies are going away, but first-party cookies are remaining and there are ways you can use them to securely and privately track consumers in a regulatory-approved way. The second issue is third-party cookies are going away. And so all of these technical companies that are selling third-party cookie replacements, they frame the problem as being, how do you replace third-party cookies? That's a flawed question. You can't. They're going away. And even Google and Apple admit the, the one consistent thing in the industry everyone agrees on is that whatever the viable replacement solution is, it's not going to be as efficient, as effective as third-party cookies. So if your question is how to replace third-party cookies, you're going to get a suboptimal outcome. The real conversation you should be having as a brand is how do I replace those business results that were driven by third-party cookies? And if that's the framework for your question, that now gives you multiple levers and solutions that you can bundle together to not only replace third-party cookies, but hopefully to continue to grow and move your business forward. So one well said. I'm going to get a third-party cookie replacement solution, whatever that looks like from Google, Apple, et cetera. Two, I need to track and own my customer data in a first-party context. That will allow me to, you know, instead of focusing then third, instead of just focusing on traffic, I want to focus on the conversion of that traffic through personalization. And now I also want to use that first-party data that I'm tracking to deliver better experiences, not just for prospects, but for my existing customers and drive up lifetime value. And when you can pull on all four of those levers, that can actually move your business dramatically forward rather than just saying, how do I replace third-party cookies? And so we believe that kind of holistic view and approach is the right question that all brands and all marketers should be asking themselves. Yeah. Yeah, we often make the mistake. We think that that's the problem and that's actually the cause of the problem. And it's about like exactly. what is the outcome we need to do? And then there's multiple ways that goes to Rome, as they say. Exactly. And you will find an optimal one for your business. Very well said. Like I think I read, mentioned it before, I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect. Mm-hmm. In that book, I highlight the 10 traits that define a remarkable software business. Well, since you are an entrepreneur yourself, I always like to kind of get a perspective from your end. Like, what do you believe needs to be the trade well to create a company that people just keep talking about? What do you need to do differently? I think it's twofold. And it's funny because they're opposite sides of the same coin, I guess. The first one is truly listen to your customers. Yeah. I mean, especially as marketers, right? And, you know, especially in this audience and your podcast and your subject, we're, all, we're so technical and data-driven. Well, yeah, I surveyed my customers. Well, that's interesting, but was it really a dialogue? When was last time you picked up the phone and literally called one, five, ten of your customers and actually spoke to them about your product, their experience, what they want? It seems so old-fashioned that we, for all of this talk of data and surveys and AI and machine learning, 
the easiest way to understand what your customer wants or needs is to just talk to them. And so I think that's a very human approach. Now, I would balance that out on the other side of it, right? It's the old thing. So you know, if Henry Ford had asked people what they wanted, sure. they would have said a faster horse. And so I think as an entrepreneur and a business builder, you have to trust your gut, which is talk to your customers, understand what they want, but then layer in your vision in terms of giving them something beyond what they're asking for, right? How do you give them the same results or better results? So again, it's not the how, it's what are you really trying to solve for? If you understand the what and the why, that will help you come up with a better solution that's in line with those customer conversations, but not in the exact manner that they may be asking for it. I like the way you phrase that because, yeah, that's so true. And if you think about it that way, yeah, I mean, creativity will come with fantastic opportunities. It goes back, I mean, it's like almost this example from Henry Ford is the example we just talked about, about like, I need a different version of third-party cookies. <laughs> that's, it's, the wrong, exactly. it's the wrong question. So what have you been most proud of so far? I mean, you've come to market, you've gained your first customers, customers come back with results. What are anecdotes that you just keep talking about? I think the first thing is, and I'm embarrassed to say this, that I was surprised by the results that we've been able to deliver. We have clients with over 100, 200% increases in performance of their media. So wow. right, when you're able to separate your audience and actually have a real natural conversation with them and use technology to scale that, you can drive some really powerful results. Again, as the founder of the company or co-founder, I should have been obvious, but I knew that this would work and I knew it would be meaningful, but I don't yeah. think I, when I started, I actually understood to the level or degree. And so yeah. there's nothing more powerful than web personalization because whether it's Facebook, email, social, influencer marketing, at the end of the day, you're driving all of those channels to your website. So if you get your website to perform more efficiently, more effectively, it's going to influence every single media campaign that you're running. So it's been a real point of leverage. So I think one, the level and scale that we've been able to, results that we can deliver for our clients has been really satisfying. And it's great to see us help them grow their business. And then the second thing is we haven't fully executed on this. This is we're in the middle of this journey, but looking to be the first company to truly connect TV and web experiences for the consumer I think we can really help brands and consumers have much more natural conversations and connect two of the largest mediums, right? There's TV and web, but really they're kind of like ships passing at the, in the night a lot of the time. And I think bringing something truly new and unique to the market of which everyone benefits gets me really, really passionate and really excited about what we're doing. Well, I mean, it's always fascinating to get customers coming back to you with results like that, that even people surprise your own expectations. So that's fantastic. And I think it all goes back to a number of things that you said before in terms of how you approach this. The listening, having a dialogue, and then give them something that they don't anticipate themselves by bringing in your own vision. So yeah, from all the lessons learned, just to go beyond that, actually, just from the lessons learned and the tidbits of wisdom that you gained over the past years of being the entrepreneur what does it do and what is potential don't that you would give to yeah, people that aspire to become a tech entrepreneur themselves or to step up as a tech entrepreneur i would say the don't is and this was my lesson i was too conservative and what i mean by that right is i was worried whether i was spending five thousand dollars a month on marketing or six thousand dollars a month but what I was ignoring was every month that I wasn't learning as quickly as I could, I was burning another $50,000 across the rest of the business. 
going back, if I could do it again, I would have spent $20,000 in marketing, got those lessons really quick and would have more than made up for it you know, on my burn rate, on my you know, acceleration. And so yeah. I think when you have limited budgets, you tend to lock up a little bit and be a little bit conservative. And I wish I had been more aggressive on specifically those areas that would have helped me learn on what resonated with the customer, how to acquire them. I was worried about two or $3,000 in marketing when I was burning another 45 to 50 on the rest of the business, right? Yeah, There's yeah. a disconnect there. And I would say, that's the don't. I would say on the do is believe in yourself, right? I think a lot of entrepreneurs have imposter syndrome. We have to be positive and believe in things that we've never, ever done before, right? Yeah. The rest of the world, you do things three or four times, you get expertise, you have that confidence. But as an entrepreneur, you're probably doing something you've never done before. And in fact, perhaps you're doing something that no one has ever done before. That's Yet, the point. You have to believe in yourself. I mean, disruptive ideas are non-obvious by their nature, because if they're obvious, someone would have taken Everyone that opportunity already. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think there really is believe in yourself. But part of that is surround yourself with other entrepreneurs, other people who may be slightly behind you so that you can add value, maybe other entrepreneurs who are slightly ahead of you in the journey. But when you have those moments of self-doubt, really understanding that that's normal, other people have gone through that and have still built these successful businesses, entrepreneurs, right, they make it seem like sleep four hours a night, do this by yourself, be resilient, keep charging forward. And some of that's true, maybe not healthy. But I think what they neglect to say is it takes a community and that everyone needs a support network. I mean, even world-class golfers like Phil Mickelson, they're the one hitting the ball, but they have a trainer, they have a caddy, they have their fitness person, they have their mental strength coach. As an entrepreneur, you need to make sure that you surround yourself with other people in similar situations and other support and resources because they always talk about you as the entrepreneur, but the reality is, is it takes a team of people and you need a team, a support network to really help you grow your business as effectively and efficiently as possible. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, that's the reason why I started the tribe that I'm running these days. Because at the end, you know, as a CEO, it's also, it's a lonely place to be. You want to get the answers. And often those answers don't come from your subordinates, from your management team, mm -hmm. because these yeah. are things you cannot discuss with them. You can't go up to your investors because this is a pretty delicate situation that you're dealing with. So where do you mm -hmm. go? And actually yesterday, as part of the mastermind that I'm running, I had exactly that same conclusion from one of them who said, I've been too conservative in the last three to six months. So that's mm -hmm. funny that you're saying that where we start to break, where we actually should push yeah, the throttle to go faster yeah. and learn faster and exactly. yeah, think bigger in this case. That was mm -hmm. what it was all about. So really good. So well, talking about the entrepreneur, of course, everything is always shiny and rosy, but what wakes you up at night these days? Full disclosure, you know, since we're focusing on media, we're still a burn rate company, right? So I think the biggest thing for us is kind of, I saw this with LifeLock going from you know, zero to $2 billion. There are these critical kind of milestones throughout the way, right? And I think one yeah. of the first ones is, you know, break even, right? Whether or not you want to still take additional capital from outside, once you cross that hump, you have control over your rate of growth. You have leverage when you can talk to investors. And so for us, that's not something that keeps me up at night, I would say. I think we're really very close to that and we're in a good spot. But I think that over the last kind of year has been kind of the biggest point is how do we get to that sooner rather than later? Because that opens up a lot of doors and opportunities to you know, better control our future and control yeah. our growth. Yeah. It becomes your focal points. At the end, that's what it's all about, right? Keep the focus on what is most important for the business to go that next step and yeah, rule every, everything else out. It's that clarity. 
Yeah, well said. I mean, that break-even point and indeed the control over your rate of growth indeed opens up so many doors. Everything becomes easier. And I mean, exactly. people have to go for funding, but it's better to go for funding where you don't need it. But mm-hmm. people will just line up because they believe in you. Then it's like, yeah, please give me money. Otherwise I go broke. Well, <laughs> <So, laughs> it's the reality of these days, you know, runway is a big word. Mm-hmm. So if there's anybody in the audience listening to this interview and you could ask them a question, how could they help you? That's a great question. I would flip that and say, are we able to help them? Right? Are they having personalized conversations with their customers? Are they looking to grow their business? If they want to do a better job delighting their customers while also driving revenue, I'd love the opportunity to obviously talk to them and not trying to turn this into a sales pitch, but I think personalization, there are two extremes to it. And what I mean by that is either people think they're doing personalization because they have a pop-up widget that captures email and it's not really personalization, or they hear personalization, it sounds so scary. It's like, I don't want to know what my customer, what color pajamas they wear to bed. And so we've really framed this conversation as personalization is something that's not very strong and not very efficient and not really worth my time or investment, or it's something that's so scary and powerful that I'm going to turn off my consumers and I'm going to have liability around privacy. And on either extreme, like most politics, either extreme of the conversation isn't healthy, but in the middle, there's a really healthy spot that says, I can have a better conversation with my customer while being thoughtful about their privacy, but still delight them and drive revenue for my company. And if that's something that those consumers and audience members think that they want to learn more about it, I just say, you know, definitely reach out to us. We never oversell. I just, I love having conversations with people, understanding their business and see if we can genuinely help them. Well, that brings me to my last question. Where can people go to find out more about your company, Persosa? Well, you know, I'm old school. I'll just give my email, right? Greg at Persosa.com, P-E-R-S-O-S-A, Greg at Persosa.com. Reach out there directly, LinkedIn. And then one of the things we've found is there's a lot of confusion about third-party cookies and privacy and your personalization and how it works. So we've actually put together some content specifically for your audience members. So go to persosa.com slash tech, T-E-C-H. And we've put together some resources specifically for your audience around third-party cookies, how they're going away, how they work, potential solutions, as well as some practical steps and a framework for how to approach personalization to better engage your customers. So really trying to kind of put some of our best resources together to see if we can really kind of help educate the marketplace. Great. Well, thanks for this, Greg. This was, yeah, fascinating conversation. I mean, I love the big idea. I love the potential that is there. Thanks for being open about the lessons that you've learned, like what you believe is critical to succeed business-wise, personally. Good luck with the business in the coming years. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed being on today and I love your podcast and picked up a copy of your book. So I'm excited to finish reading it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure on my side. Thank you. And this ends my conversation with Gregory. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning in to this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Gregory Lim, co-founder and CEO of Persosa. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required 
to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come through. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.